This episode of Greater Than Code is brought to you by Atlas Authority. Atlas Authority helps organizations manage and scale their Atlassian stack. With expertise in Jira, Confluence, Bitbucket, and other software development tools, Atlas Authority offers consulting, training, licensing, and managed hosting services. Visit atlasauthority.com GTC to find out more and learn why organizations trust Atlas Authority to implement, support, and maintain their critical Atlassian applications. everyone. Welcome to episode 134 of Greater Than Code. I'm Artie Starr, and I'm here with my fabulous co-host, Rain Hendricks. I like fabulous. And I am here with my friend, Sam Livingston Gray. Hello, hello. And I am super thrilled to announce our guest today, who is Halima Nash. Halima is a social entrepreneur, founder of Rosecrans Ventures, and Chief Partnerships Officer at the Academy Group, which is a startup that invests in young people from under-resourced communities and prepares them to own, operate, and incubate highly successful companies across sectors. She's also a proud Compton, California native, and it's a city that's greatly shaped her ambition, values, and interest in reaching back as she climbs. Halima is a first-generation college grad who holds a Bachelor of Arts in Business Administration from Howard University and a Master of Divinity and a Certificate in Nonprofit Management from Duke University. Halima, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here with the fun bunch, here with the cool kids in the morning. <laughs> yes, it is still very much the morning here. <laughs> and uh, as we have already warned you, uh, our traditional first question is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? My superpower is cultural fluency, um, the ability to sort of float in between contexts, whether that's socioeconomic context, geographic context. And I got that from growing up in Compton, California. Um, the idea of being able to navigate different circles of people. Kendrick Lamar actually talks a lot about it. Um, you know, it is a code switching. Yes, but it is also um, kind of a, a deeper level of that because sometimes people think code switching is changing who you are, changing your tone when you're in different spaces, but cultural fluency is operating authentically in who you are in any space that you are in and feeling comfortable and having an ability to engage in all of those spaces. Malcolm Gladwell actually uh, calls it connectors uh, as being sort of the gift. People who hold membership in a lot of different social worlds and soul cultures and niches. And and that's sort of my, my superpower. And I got that growing up in a city that, as you mentioned in my bio, has greatly shaped who I am as a person. Uh, and it's made it so that I can uh, go to the projects and have conversations with people that have ridiculously amazing skills, but can't see them as transferable skills. The same way that I can be in a corporate boardroom um, with individuals who need a little more grit in terms of their ability to engage projects and engage failure um, and all of those different things. Um, and I can be in places where folks do not share my religious beliefs or people do not share my race or people do not share my politics and still be able to engage in a conversation about our humanity. So you're clearly the expert here. So let me see if <laughs> the way I think about this makes sense. The way I think about this is humans are super complex and we have all different sorts of parts of us mm -hmm. and we can activate the parts of us that make sense in a situation to relate to people we with, to relate to a certain context. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that we're being inauthentic. It just means we're right. using different parts of ourselves. 
Oh, yes, absolutely. And that's the fluency part about it. You know, I think that, uh, you know, code switching is this, you know, word that people use in professional development and they mm-hmm. use it when they talk about um, ascending to different leadership positions. And, you know, it's funny, you know, we're, we're using this phrase, I am cold. Um, and so code switching is not just like, how do I crack the code and how I communicate with this other individual? It is like, how do we crack the code as a community of people and how to talk to each other and how to engage each other humanity. So it's not really switching. It's actually mm-hmm. being and existing. It's cold existing. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like code switching is sort of a technique that you use where yeah. you decide sort of what register to speak in or yeah. things like that. But it doesn't right. mean that you're being a different person. It just means you're using right. different abilities that you have. Correct. Or another way to look at that might be you're being an effective communicator. Right. Absolutely. You say code switching. I say being effective. That's nice. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> so, so I'm a constructivist. So I think that we relate to people by building bridges. We relate to people right. by connecting with each other. And that yeah. happens by constructing something that wasn't there before. Right. Okay. So what I'm hearing, if I sort of think about this as code, you know, <laughs> is there's this authentic core self that has a wholeness, that is a lightness, that is your gifts for seeing through all of these different lenses. Mm-hmm. And when you enter in these different communities and when you interact with different individuals, you learn to see them and speak their language and work toward a shared language such that you can say, these are my values as a human being. And I can kind of see and understand the underlying human behind Mm -hmm. your values as a human being Mm -hmm. and try and make sense of our different adapters so that we can have an authentic conversation by finding a, a bridge language between ourselves. Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, if you think about it, you know, when I talk about my superpower, I always say I speak multiple cultural languages. You yeah. know, think of people that speak different languages. They don't even know when they switch to Spanish from Spanish to French, right? They don't yeah. know when they've switched from, you know, Mandarin Chinese to English. It's just something that you're able to adjust to. So it's this idea that you can speak these very different languages in different spaces, but it's not like when you change from French to Spanish that you're changing who you are. You're just adjusting your language. Yeah. So I think that speaks to the variety of experience that you have that lets you find something in yourself for each to adapt to each of these situations, like Janelle was saying. There's a lot of, you know, different contexts and cultures and things like that. There's a whole huge variety out there, and you have to have variety within yourself to find something to relate. Absolutely. You know, and I think that there, when, when you find that there is discomfort with diversity or if there is discomfort with differences, I think sometimes that speaks to people's inability to hear different languages as the human language. It is, that is not the language that I speak. That other is uncomfortable because you should be speaking my language as opposed to me seeking to understand yours and speak authentically in mine. Is it time for the Virginia Satir quote? I think it is. So Virginia Satir has a quote that I bring up because it's always relevant, (laughs) which is, we come together through our sameness and grow through our differences. Nice. So I'm really curious, like in these conversations, do you find certain human authentic metaphors that you gravitate toward as a shared language? Like what words do you use when you talk about humanity and what that means? 
Uh, you know, it's interesting. I think it depends on the audience. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I work with mostly young black and brown LGBTQ teens and Generation Z, the language that they absorb, how they hear, how they respond is so much different than <laughs> my generation or my grandmother's or even, you know, my parents. And so, you know, I, I work really hard, especially when we're talking about humanity, which is our common thread to ensure that I am existing in the other space. Mm. How do I exist in your space? So that if my hope is to communicate and to hear you, um, then I kind of have a little work to do to sort of be where you are. And the hope is, is that you can do the same thing. It doesn't always happen. Uh, but when I talk to talk about humanity, I am considering the audience first and hoping to exist in their space and how I have that conversation. So you must also be good then at listening to a person and building a mental model of what their worldview is. Absolutely. I think you, you have to. Active listening <laughs> is not just important in relationships. It's important in business. It is important in us just sort of creating what it means to be an intentional community. I think it all starts with listening. And I think if you can practice listening without judgment and bias, it helps you to hear. You know, if you can practice listening without setting an agenda of what you hope to accomplish in the conversation, it helps us to see one another and hear one another. So that's sort of the intention in listening. It is, you know, how can I hear? And I don't think we all have conversations in that way. Sometimes we listen with hopes that the other person will hurry up and finish talking so that you can make your point, you know, but I, I use the Calm app uh, as a part of my daily meditation. And uh, Tamara Levitt talks frequently about setting intention, even in listening. And I think that for me, practicing mindful listening is also sort of a helpful tool in engaging humanity across differences. It's kind of like a cheat code. It gets yes. people to, to <laughs> open up to you. And then I think that's also why being authentic is so important, because at the same time, you're trying to connect with them and understand them. It's mutual. They're trying to understand you. Yes, absolutely. And the hope is, is that it's mutual. So what do you use this superpower to do? Oh, great question. It's one of my favorite questions. So um, I, too, am interested in building bridges. Uh, and right now, in terms of my career, my greater hope is that, you know, I can help to change the complexion of the workforce and ensure that the future of work uh, looks similar to the generation that's growing into it. Generation Z is 61 million strong. And they do not engage work and career in the future workforce in the same way that you and I might. Uh, if we're interested in professional development, we might go on LinkedIn and look for an article. They are more content based. They're more interested in diversity. Um, also, Gen Z is 49 percent non-white. So they will be the most racially diverse generation. So how do we talk to them about entrepreneurship? How do we talk to them about social entrepreneurship and its power in changing the world? How do we talk to them about actually becoming owners and operators of businesses? How do we talk to them about ascending to leadership in a way that is specific to who they are and authentic to who they are and not saying to them in order to reach leadership positions, in order to acquire business, 
in order to uh, reach sort of the heights of your professional dreams, you have to put on this suit. You have to talk this way. You have to conform in this way. It's actually, you can be authentically who you are. It's just helping you to navigate the challenges that, uh, that will surely come, but understanding that those challenges can be navigated in a way that will ensure your success and actually not taking you out of the game. So cultural fluency for me is like, how could I be in spaces with CEOs to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in an intentional way? How could I be in spaces with young people at high schools? How can I be in communities where there are formerly incarcerated individuals that are looking for workforce opportunities and ensuring that all of those entities understand that they can collide and create the future of work in a more diverse and beautiful way. And bringing more people and creating more opportunities, making sure that the opportunities that I have, for instance, that other people can have them too. It's good for the businesses because then they get to hire more people Mm -hmm. that can do Mm -hmm. good work. But I don't care Mm -hmm. so much about that. I care much more about it's good for all these people to be able to realize their potential. I think that being able to realize your potential is a huge part of human flourishing and Mm -hmm. happiness. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, you're talking about human happiness and, you know, people flourishing. This next general, the wonderful thing about millennials and even Gen Z is they're pushing corporations to be more inclusive in ways that we didn't or couldn't because we were more concerned in our generation about being safe, you know, getting the good job, you know, getting a retirement, you know, like all of those things that sort of represented safety for yeah, us, safety like and a, success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's like a hierarchy of needs thing here where they're yeah. building on past mm-hmm. success. Absolutely. So, you know, the idea of like, you know, everything that happened from the 60s to now and like the fight for equality and setting this wonderful foundation, millennials are the first to sort of benefit from the work that happened during that era. But they're also the first generation to see a lot of those things taken away. So I think that, you know, when we talk about the future of work, you know, for me, I think that we have to have like an intent focus on underrepresented populations. I think that we have to have an intent focus on, you know, ensuring that, you know, this new generation that will be the most racially and ethnically diverse adult generation in the nation's history, that how we support that generation uh, that will be entering the U.S. workforce and building ideas and building businesses is intentional and, and sort of represents their voice. And, you know, McKinsey and Company actually did a diversity report and discovered you know, which most of us already knew that irrespective of industry and global location, companies in the top quartile of ethnic diversity in the executive suite, they actually outperform their competition by double digits. So diverse companies actually do better. Your passion is so inspiring. I'm just kicking back here going, wow. (laughs) Like I, I, so I have a question for you. I'm like, I'm imagining, let's say you're hanging out at a community group, say, you know, some tech meetup or something you went to, Mm -hmm. and you're kind of looking around and listening to various people talk. What are some of the sparks that you see flying that make you go, that person right there has some talent? Mm -hmm. What, What are some of those sparks you see? You know, grit, determination, agency, you know, folks that talk about being able to build an idea from nothing, folks that know what it's like to try to break that glass ceiling and they keep chipping away at it. 
folks that are in spaces where they might be the only, the only woman in the space, the only uh, Jewish person in the space, the only um, Native American person in the space. And they see it as an asset and not a liability. They see the value that diversity can actually bring. And a light bulb always goes off. I always want to know. I'm interested in your leadership story. Something that I generally ask. If a person stands up and asks a question that shows that light, I will be the first person. I might not wait in line for the person on the panel, but I'm going to wait in line to talk to the person that asked that question or that person that is daring and courageous to sort of push the envelope and not just ask a question that will help them get a business card, but actually ask a question that pushes us to be better as companies, as communities, and as just a human race. Yeah, you touched on something there that um, has been sort of in the back of my head as we're talking about all of this, which is that you mentioned code switching earlier on. And uh, it seems to me that we use that in a way that encourages people to take the aspects of themselves that don't fit into the dominant culture and leave those at home, right? We talk about code switching as people from an underrepresented group adapting essentially to whiteness. Mm -hmm. How can we, and I say this as a white guy, on the other end, make things easier so that people don't have to do that, so that they can be their whole selves? Mm -hmm. So when you say we, you mean organizations and just as a wider uh, as a wider community? As somebody with uh, access to organizational power, and then maybe possibly also as somebody who is an individual who cares. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think that it is engaging underrepresented populations that enter the door as talent and not charity. I think that there are a lot of companies when they think about diversifying their workforce, um, they go to nonprofit organizations and those nonprofit organizations are engaged through their corporate and social responsibility division as opposed to human resources. So when those individuals are seen as quality human capital, when they are seen as talent, they're going to be engaged more as a peer and not a project. So I think that that's the first thing, ensuring that how we, the language that we use and how we engage underrepresented populations is incredibly key. And then the second thing is, I think it actually takes work. We are, you know, very tribal people. I think it takes work to diversify relationships. I often hear people say, um, well, we don't have any women on our board because, you know, when I, I go golfing. I'm generally golfing with men and you reach out to individuals that are in your direct network. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know any um, Latinx men. E and even though we need that on our board, I just don't know any of them. And I, I hear people lean on that a lot. And so there are diverse spaces all of the time, everywhere that we go. And it might take some intentionality to say, you know what, I'm going to when I think about conferences that I'm going to go to. As a white guy, I'm going to go to Afrotech this year and do some relationship building. Um, you know, I am going to travel to a convention that focuses on Latina women in the workforce. You know, even though I'm an African-American male, it is doing some intentional work across differences to build relationships that represent the diversity of the country and the diversity that we want to see. It's a weird cop out, right? Like you're the one that chose to go golfing. You're the one <laughs> that put yourself in those spaces in the first place. But oh, nothing I can do to change it now. Sorry. Right. <laughs> it seems to me that in order to get past that, we have to be the ones who are willing to put ourselves in a position where we are in the minority. And that's deeply uncomfortable for those of us who've been centered our whole lives. And we got to get over it. Wow, that was really powerful. 
deeply uncomfortable for those who have been at the center their whole lives. So consider the level of discomfort for a young African-American male that is at a predominantly white institution. And that is their life at school, throughout high school, and sometimes even college. You know, I went to Howard University. You know, I went to a historically black college that greatly shaped my worldview. And if there's one thing that's sort of ingrained in our psyche and being there, it is that this is greater than you. This is about the Howard University community. This is about the global community, your ability to make impact. So you better learn how to shine, how to be great, how to utilize your voice, even if you are the only. Because we know when we go out in the world, it's, it's not like Howard University's campus. It's a very different world. And so you have this wonderful community that embraces you, that loves your skin color, that loves your voice and your level of authenticity and your background and your history. And then for most of us, our first job out of college is not that. It's deeply uncomfortable, but we are very much trained in how to push through that discomfort to actually get to the power, get to the promise, get to the opportunity. And I think that that's what we are asking in return. You know, you might have to choose to be uncomfortable. Um, it's a tough choice, but it is a choice that those that have been in most mostly dominant cultures um, have to make in an effort for us to sort of do this diversity and inclusion thing together. There's this idea, that I guess I will say Western culture, that Change happens when you make a list of the reasons you should change and all the facts that pertain to the situation and you, you make a decision to change. And the, the I guess the Eastern or the Buddhist or, or Taoist idea is more you change when you're confronted with a reality that you can't accept. And I think one of the things that makes this uncomfortable is that you're confronted with a reality that it vitiates your worldview. It's really a reality if you fully understand what's happening that you just can't accept. And not only that, but you realize that the thing that needs to change is is you. You're you're the thing that needs to change, not other people. Mm-hmm. Mm. I feel like for me, I, I, like these last few years, lots of hard where I felt like I was, you know, screaming at the top of my lungs and nobody could hear me. I felt invisible. I felt like I was falling off the edge of the world. And I've largely been a woman and the only woman in most contexts that I've been in in my career. But listening to you talk, I've definitely seen that as a play. And so I've learned how to use my special powers, my special gifts to be able to move groups and stuff. Then when I found myself in this other context of like saying, hey, these there's these things that are really important. There's these people that matter. And what originally started as like my software project being crushed from management not listening, that was one of those things that struck my fire. My ex-husband, who was like super crazy controlling and pulled me into this worship relationship and then it got abusive and and escaping that whole nightmare. That was one of those things that, Mm -hmm. you know, flipped me in life. Mm -hmm. And then seeing the escalation of normalization of abusive sort of violent perspective toward others. And it's not, I mean, there's been an undercurrent of tension for, you know, a long, long time, a lot of hard for a long time. Mm-hmm. But when violent acts, whether those be, you know, words or physical or what otherwise become normalized, mm-hmm. there's a shift in our culture. And at the same time, 
cracking open and finding compassion for our shared humanity, you know, Mm -hmm. it's those two things combined that create this sense of arrow of drive of passion of agency Mm. to believe that, you know, it doesn't, doesn't have to be this way. We can Mm -hmm. be our authentic selves. We can care about one another and we can use our powers combined, our gifts combined to make the world a better place. And so ever since then, I've been trying to actively listen and also to see what I as an individual with my gifts can actually do to make things better. And I feel like in the process of that, one of the things I've learned that being the only woman, one of the powers that I had is I listen and I watch people and I identify what their gifts are and I help them find their special gifts such that they can shine in the world. And when it comes to dynamics of women and men, as a woman basically pointing out the beauty in other people, I get a lot of power and loyalty just from being my authentic self and helping other people to shine, helping lift other people, being nurturing and helping people be their stars and making that okay. Helping people be their stars. That's powerful. This is why I ultimately changed my name. So my, my Twitter name was Janelle KZ and people always ask me, why Janelle KZ? What's, what's the Z all about? And when I started thinking about it, I thought about Z as completion. So my last name is Klein and I was, which means small and I was born a little. So I think about like, you know, people that are known for their small stature, their littleness, right? The little hobbits, right? And so from K to Z was like this metaphor of completion for me of like, I want to be my whole self. And so I'm turning 40 this year. And so I've been thinking a lot about what that means and who I want to be in the world. And this gift of helping other people to find their stars and be their stars in life. And so then I decided I would change my name to Janelle Artemis Star, and that I was going to live that path. And so now I'm going by Artie Star. <laughs> I love that. I think you could change your name, but I've been thinking about this for a long time. And a lot of that is just once I recognize my own gift in the world, then it becomes about, you know, how do I be me in the world in a way that lifts people, you know? And I think humanity needs all of our unique, special inspiration, all of our stars, you know? There's not a star in the world that doesn't deserve to shine. Yes. Amen to that. There is not a star in the world that doesn't deserve to shine. Yes. Sparkle. I like it. Well, that will be my reflection <laughs> for, for today as well. And, I, you know, it makes me think about something like how do we, as we evolve, it's this idea of changing your name, right? You know, it's this idea of you know, we're talking about authenticity. So the idea is not to move away from who you are um, in terms of your, your soul, but how I am such a different person at almost 40 than I was at 30. And I was a different person then than I was in my 20s. So as we're constantly evolving, like we reach a deeper level of authenticity. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's one of the things I learned is it's not it's not a box. It's not a shape that you're trying to arrive at. We are an arrow. We live as a flow. You know, we're always growing. We're always, you know, becoming more and more of 
who we are. And that, that core star in our being is always our star. It's, you know, uncovering our gifts. It's, you know, all of the, the suffering and the hard and the challenges and that agency of going after it and doing it anyway and living with intention that way, you know, living with intention is being your arrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Virginia Satir has um, a metaphor that she uses. Uh, she I'm says, sorry, Rain, you've used your Virginia Satir allotment for the call. No, no we, we, we discussed this. I have three. Oh, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> and then you need to take a long rest. <laughs> yes, that's fair. Uh, the, the humans are, are like a fountain. We have all of these jets and water is flowing to all these different places. And we can choose where the water flows and where to direct our power. But sometimes some of the jets are stopped up. Some of the jets don't work the way that they should. And when that happens, the flow gets really irregular and hard to control. And we just can't move our attention or our power to do the things that we know we ought to be able to do. And so for her, her focus was on freeing up all of those jets, freeing up all of those possibilities that are inherent in ourselves so that we can really be our complete selves and direct our power to wherever it needs to go. And that's what she called congruence. That we have access to all of our possibilities. Yeah. You know, I would agree, but there's this idea that having access to all of your possibilities can sometimes feel like a very internal thing as opposed to an external reality. Um, So then what is the bridge from like this idea of congruence to, you know, what you can actually see um, from a tangible perspective is like a question that I'm pondering. Yeah. And there's also, there's what we can do with the sort of the capabilities and resources that we have available to us and maximizing that. And then there's also giving people or making available the the resources that people need to really achieve their potential. Absolutely. And I think that's a part of why I'm so passionate about my work for opportunities to ensure that young people can reach their full potential. So uh, Stephen Jay Gould has a quote, uh, I am somehow less interested in the weight and convolution of Einstein's brain than in the near certainty that people of equal talent have lived and died in cotton fields and sweatshops. That part. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you think those potentials were in those people all along, but they didn't get mm-hmm. to realize them. And it's not yeah. for their own lack of trying. Correct. Right. That's where we, we get out of psychology and into sociology. Mm-hmm. Yep. There were intangibles that existed. There were, you know, there were spaces that were not inclusive for that talent. And there's this idea that you have to have will that that's the reason why, you know, there's a difference between like equity and inclusion, right? You know, like you could level the playing field, but you can also make it a lot harder for me as someone that's different in that space, right? Like creating inclusive spaces meaning means that, okay, we've got equity. I'm going to open the door for you to come into the room. But once I enter the room, creating an environment where I feel included. So there are people that think that, that are individualists that think that society is just the sum of all the individuals. And there are people that think the opposite, that think that individuals are just the sum of all of the society's pr- pressures and influence on them. And I'm in the middle. I, I think that it's not enough to just be an individualist and think that there is no structural societal issues, but it's also not enough to think that the society isn't really 
influenced by who's in it and and what their their behaviors and goals and 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 values are. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it goes both ways. I would say that I'm I'm right in the middle as well. I'm just thinking that. Uh, we talked a little bit about, you know, humanity and our goal to become one humanity, right? You know, it's this thing that we talk about all the time. But if you acknowledge that there are societal pressures that exist, if you acknowledge that there is equity that exists and you have one group of people, one sort of remnant of folks that are fighting for that level of equality, and then you have other individuals that are fighting against that equality, you know, there is an imbalance that exists in community. And that's what we're seeing now. And I think that we are at this space now where we are in a country and we are in an environment that represents tremendous promise, but also represents tremendous problem. So will you be that individual that swings the pendulum on the side of promise or on the side of problem? And I think that there are uh, really strong efforts on both sides. Yeah, I feel like that uh, the structuralist perspective really lets people off the hook. Because if you say, hey, you know, uh, it's not me, there's, you know, there's just society is just oppressive and there's nothing I can do about it, then you're ceding your ability to act, your opportunity and your responsibility to act. Yes. And what you're doing is you're letting the individuals who do act to challenge or reinforce structural norms, you're giving them all the, all the control. Yeah. And you know, I, I think that it makes it really easy to be apathetic. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's easy to be like, you know what, things are just messed up. Like, I don't like the direction of my company. I don't like the direction of my city or the direction of, of, of my country. And, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm volunteering. I feel like I vote and things just are not changing. So I'm just going to not engage. It's really easy to do that. And I think that it takes an effort to really tap into the most beautiful things that make us human to not make that decision. The resilience that I think exists in all of us, Um, the idea that you don't necessarily have to take no for an answer every time. But if you get a hundred no's and you finally get that one yes, it's something exhilarating about it. Sometimes you have to push through to get to that yes. Sometimes you have to push through to get to justice. Sometimes you have to push through to get to equity. And I think that it's in us to do. And I think we are fighting against our own humanity to lean on apathy. That was so beautiful. Resilience in all of us. I jumped off the entrepreneur cliff in 2016. <laughs> so, oh, it's a job to go and like, you know, everyone told me, no, you need to get your head out of the clouds. And I'm like, but I have a dream. <laughs> and I'm a badass engineer. And like, you know, even if nobody understands what the hell I'm talking about, I can sit down and go. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm in a fortunate position with respect to privilege. And that gives me the opportunity to get out there and actually do something that makes a difference. And so it's like, we all have the capability of that resilience. But I mean, I think that introduction about as you rise in the ladder, always reaching back, it's like, yeah, reaching back as she climbs. That's beautiful too. And I, I mean, I think that's one of those things that's necessary. I, I don't think we should feel ashamed for our privilege and our success, but I think being able to see what's going on and see your own gifts and capabilities go, okay, what can I do from my position of privilege 
to make a difference in the world, to make the world a better place? Absolutely. The question becomes, what do you do with your privilege? I think that in in culture now, there is a, a, a really resonating dialogue around, you know, what people are doing with white privilege, for example. You know, like, if you know that, that you have it, what are you going to do with it? But I think that there is an additional conversation in acknowledging whatever privilege that you have. Like, you know, white privilege is, you know, white supremacy and white privilege. It's a structure. It's a super powerful thing that, you know, I hope we are able to break down. It's taken generations to build and it might take generations to break. But it's worth doing. Um, But it's worth doing. It is worth doing. I think that the more white people that can sit down and acknowledge that white privilege is something that they have grown a level of advantage because of, um, then the acknowledgement of your own privilege, I think if you don't have that, then, you know, there's no thought to what am I doing with my privilege? You're not acknowledging that it exists. The same way that I could say, I have a level of privilege as a college graduate. I have access to certain things as a person that has also graduated from Duke University. There are privileges that come with being a Duke University alumni. I know that there are privileges that come with being a homeowner, for example, and a lot of things that I think my ancestors and even my grandparents prayed for, prayed that I would one day have. And now that I have them, The reason why I always say it's my effort to reach back as I climb, because I realize that there are a lot of people that look like me, that share my skin tone, that share my context, that don't necessarily have the same privileges. And I'm using the word privileges because I realize that that's what they are. You know, and these are hard fought privileges. You know, these were not things that were handed to me, but there are things that I worked my ass off for. And even though, even still, There's still this constant idea, how am I creating an environment where these privileges are available to other people that are not just myself? How am I creating an environment that opens the door, Yes, that allows people the opportunity to grow in these, these sorts of ways? If we're always looking forward at the next stair that we need to achieve in our own game. And we don't look back and realize, hey, the stairs behind us, you know, they're missing a few steps. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's splinters in it. Let's get some sandpaper. Do some work. I ended up going down my life path and I I don't have kids and my husband has a good job. And so when I got the entrepreneur itch, I could basically go, what is it that I want to spend my time on? What is it that I want to spend my effort on and have pretty much near zero constraints in terms of what I could do? And so I look at the social infrastructure type problems of these systems that are broken that could be so much better. And I erase the world in my brain and think, okay, let's think about this as a software problem. And if the goal of the system is helping people to shine like stars, how do we self-organize and come up with a system that helps helps all the people shine? Because we all deserve to shine, right? How do we do that? Like if we think about that as a design problem, How do we engineer systems that help lift people? 
if we take a step back and think about it as a design problem, it's amazing how many ideas and stuff are already out there and things that people figured out that worked and ways that, you know, we can use science and run experiments together and care about each other together and we can build lots of stairs. stairs in every neighborhood so you know i mean it's like there's no reason why these stairs can't exist Mm -hmm. but they take effort they take intention Mm -hmm. to get your ass out there and get some sandpaper (laughs) maybe even build an elevator while you're at it there you go make the the climb a little easier make elevation you know there is uh, an article that will be coming out in made magazine um in a celebration of women where i talk about the idea of self-made so the the definition of self-made for young african-american women that become entrepreneurs will be very different than when madam cj walker built her business you know 100 years ago Uh, i think that we are now in the making of opportunities and organizations like Girls Who Code and organizations like Polished Pebbles that are doing work to ensure that this hard, jagged uh, stairway is not as difficult for the next next generation. So being self-made for them, you know, means that we're shortening the distance. We are shortening the distance for their ability to make it to the top of the stairs. That's something that I'm, I'm really proud to be a part of. A generation of people that are doing that work, shortening the distance. You know, right now, you know, you talked about being a founder and I am super excited uh, that I am formally launching my company. It's called Rosecrans Ventures. And we are doing work to coach underrepresented talent towards success and helping them navigate those systems that we were just talking about. And it's about shortening the distance. How do I shorten the distance for young people that are now 16, 17 years old so that they can understand the lessons that it took me learning when I was 25, 26? getting out of college? How do we give them, the, give them the level of professional development where they're receiving the same level of coaching that a CEO gets? You know, you hear about executive coaches, right? You get an executive coach when you're in the C-suite, but our young people need that level of coaching now because we know that they're going to be young girls in these systems have to be more prepared. Transgender teens in these systems have to be more prepared. Young African-American males have to be more prepared. Young Muslim men in systems that are not welcoming to them have to be more prepared. So how do we help these populations of people that come from marginalized communities shine and be greater and level up so that when they are 21, they have the same level of executive prowess that I had at 35? That's what Rosecrans Ventures is about. Um, And I named it Rosecrans Ventures because I grew up in Compton, California. And Rosecrans was sort of that throughway. It was the street that leads you to the big, bold future, right? It takes you to the freeway and the freeway takes you to the beach and it takes you downtown. It takes you to all these places. But I had to learn to navigate the local world first. I had to learn to navigate where I was. So how do we help young people navigate internships? navigate their interviews, navigate conflict? How do we help them navigate their spaces so that they are not learning the hard way, the way a number of us did? And it leads them to that big, bold future, but the distance isn't as far. 
So I really like this idea of going to them and helping them where they are, figuring out what are the obstacles that are in their way, you know, what's their situation like, and then finding ways to help them with the skills they need to do better in their internships. Uh, you know, this sort of local contextual action, I think, is super important. Absolutely. And it's also, I have a very different business model. You know, my strategic advisors are young people in between 18 and 21. Um, and the reason why they're my strategic advisors is because I don't feel like naturally I speak Gen Z language. So I want to build a model that comes from their perspective. You know, I want to understand when I think about professional development and I think about career development, I went to college in the late, late 90s. So what we learned about showing up well in business structures, I think is going to be a little nuanced when it comes to their generation. So before I build out what the model looks like and tell them this is how you build your profile, I want to learn what does it mean to understand what building your profile looks like in your generation. I don't know that the static Word document resume that you attach to an email is going to be the way that you build your brand in business structures in the future. You know, my young people talk about, um, you know, for example, I have one teen that started a robotics club at his high school. And so in trying to get a coding internship, what does it look like for you to build a 30 second video of this machine that you created and talk about starting a robotics club? And that's your resume. That's what I want to do with Rosecrans Ventures, ensuring that we're building profiles in their language, that we are understanding how to deliver content in their language, because there will be 61 million Gen Z professionals entering this new workforce. And I think that it's going to look a whole lot different. So I am trying to ch capture that generation with urban authenticity is what I call it. <laughs> what I always say is that if you want to teach, you have to start by learning. Absolutely. So I, I said I'm a constructivist, and in learning what that means is if you want to teach someone, you do it by going to where they are, learning what it's like for them, and then building from there. I would absolutely agree with you. It's learning and it's doing. So the learning for Rosecrans Venture actually hiring young people that represent the target population in the target market. And the doing is hiring to do work, providing employment for that generation. If I'm going to Google and I'm going to Facebook and I'm going to Uber and I'm saying this is the generation of talent that you want to hire, they are different, they are nuanced, and they are ridiculously content-driven and entrepreneurial and amazing, then I actually have to do that work as well. How many of this population am I hiring through my business model? How many internships am I providing through this model? So that's the learning and it's also the doing. I think that's also implied in reaching back, right? You have to reach back to where they are so that you can pull them with you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's think so much about just the eight, you know, like it's going back and being in service to my younger self. It's reaching back to that 14-year-old Halima, that 16-year-old Halima. What was her level of ambition? What did she need to know? What did she need to hear? That is my thinking as an entrepreneur. I'm, I have them in mind and you know, I have this honor and privilege to serve this population of young people that teach me something new and bold and beautiful, I think, every day. Uh, I'm all excited about I, authenticity and and uh, what yeah, were some of the other words you used of, of intentionality? I love that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Intentionality. It's how I do my work because I always have to be thinking, you know, 
How do I make sure that I do not get too far away from their voice? I don't get too far away from what I believe to be this big, bold future that we can create together. Yeah. Like a more diverse workforce, a more inclusive culture, a, a humanity where we are not always defining ourselves in terms of our differences, but we acknowledge our differences and our own diversity. We walk authentically in that. And that is included in spaces. Um, it, it's a multi-layered work for sure. Um, but I think it takes intentionality to get there. So at this point in the show, we usually have each person give their reflections about what kind of things stood out to them key takeaways, things they're thinking about, tying final threads together. Well, I can get us started, I suppose. Halima, you talked about reaching back as you climb, and then Artie, you followed up on that and you used the metaphor of a door. And I started thinking about that and I realized there's a bunch of things that you can do with a door. You can walk through it uh, and you can lock it behind you. You know, you can barricade it. You can start shooting people who try to come through. You can just close it behind you. You can walk through and let it swing closed behind you. You can hold it open. You can prop it open. You can prop it open and go out on the sidewalk and like say, hey, there's an open door over there. You can help people walk through it. And if somebody's in a sledgehammer and the door isn't wide enough, you can just take a sledgehammer to the wall and make the opening bigger, right? There's a, there's a lot of things that you can do with that. And I like, I hadn't really thought about that before, but I like that as sort of a continuum of the possibilities of, of things that you can do with something that you originally think of as just being this sort of static part of the, the landscape around you that, that you can interact with and that you can change. I'm going to use up my third uh, Virginia Satir reference. She has uh, this self-esteem toolkit, which is a collection of metaphors that you can use to think about difficult situations you're in, try to bring more of your personal resources to bear. And one of those tools is a golden key. And golden keys will open any door. And it's not just enough to open the door. You have to think about what it means to walk through it. And you have to decide whether that's the right door for you. But the first step is to make sure that the door is open. And sometimes that's something you can do. Sometimes that's something that you need help with. Sardi, when you said uh, everyone deserves to shine, that really hit home for me. And I was thinking that you could not be shining because you haven't reached your potential. You're not as bright as you could be. But that's not the only reason that people don't shine. Maybe they don't shine because there are systemic challenges that are shadowing them, that are preventing us from seeing their light or preventing them from being as bright as they could be. So I think that we have to think about both of these things, about maximizing the potential within each person and also maximizing their ability to shine through the world and, and to actually take all of these systemic things that are reducing their light and doing the really often tough work to change them and get rid of them and make it so we can actually see them. We started out this call with the superpower of cultural fluency. And I think it was beautiful in really getting to see what that looks like. I asked you, Halima, like this question about what are some of the words and language that you use when you talk to people in these other worlds? And I got to hear a bit of your vocabulary and the words you used. And you were very deliberate about your word choice with talking about urban authenticity and intentional community and practicing listening and changing the complexion of the workforce. Like the, through the entire discussion, we got to hear this beautiful, like metaphorical language of your core values and what you're doing in the world. And I think what you're able to communicate with your cultural fluency is your passion and this message about what matters. 
And I think that's such a beautiful thing of all things, of all gifts to be able to communicate in all these different languages is what matters. And you see this generation, this future of people, and you think about them in terms of who was I when I was this age? What were the things that I needed to hear? How do I give that to these other people? How do I communicate what these people need to hear, what I needed to hear? And I think that's such an amazing gift to be able to communicate that and reach back in that way. So thank you. Thank you. That was beautiful. I think that cultural fluency, it does very much feel like it's my gift to the world. Uh, the ability to connect different communities, uh, whether it's public and private sector, whether it is, you know, young girls and older women, young African American males and men who have uh, achieved a certain level of success, underrepresented populations and giving them a platform where they feel heard and that happens in their voice. And it also feels like a gift. It feels like a gift that I have audience of the next generation of what this will look like. I like to call it radical professionalism. Uh, this idea of elevating your professionalism in authenticity, in spaces, in a way that's radical. And I think that is how you make people matter. That is how you code. That's really good. I just had a, I guess, epiphany that's better than my reflection was. Can I replace my reflection with a new reflection? Bonus reflection from Rain. Bonus <laughs> reflection. Already, you were talking about stars and, and shining. And I was thinking another metaphor that might work is light bulbs. And light bulbs have the ability to shine, but only through their connection with others. I think we get our power through our connection with other people. And some people have more access to that power than other people. And for me, it's about making sure that everyone can shine because their connection to others gives them the power that they need. Well, this has been a really wonderful conversation, and I'm sad to see it go. But uh, I hope that uh, we can continue it uh, on the Slack channel. Listeners, if you're interested and have not already done so, you can join our Slack community by donating as little as $1 on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash greater than code. It's a great place to go and uh, hang out and ask interesting questions and uh, support each other. And it's a, it's one of the highlights of my days is, is interacting with people in there. So we'll be back at you next week. Thanks very much. 